This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hi, I'm Steve Sharetta, Senior Managing Editor at Knowledge at Wharton, and I'd like to welcome Carolyn Kuski to today's podcast. And she's going to discuss important developments in residential flood insurance. She's one of four authors of a new paper from the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Process Center. So home flood insurance is increasingly an important part of the insurance world, given forecasts for more flooding in the United States in the future as a result of stronger storms and rising sea levels, all part of climate change. And Carol is the director of the Policy Incubator at the center. And the title of the paper uh, that she and her co-authors have written is The Emerging Private Flood Insurance Market in the United States. And her co-authors, by the way, are uh, Wharton Professor Howard Kunreither, Brett Lingle, and Leonard Shabman. Welcome to our podcast, Carolyn. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So just as background, I wanted to note something most people probably don't realize, and that is that almost all residential flood insurance today is written by the federal government. It has been for quite some time. But now some groups are trying to get private insurers more involved. So what's the big picture on this, which is a major part of your study? Yes. As you said, for the last 50 years, flood insurance has primarily only been available through the federally run National Flood Insurance Program, often called the NFIP, which is housed within FEMA. There's always been a more robust commercial flood insurance market, but private flood insurance for residences, for families, for households is new and has really only emerged in the last two to three years. As this new market is developing and gaining some attention, we've seen a lot of conflicting feelings about what it means for consumers, for the finances of the NFIP, and for floodplain management more broadly within the U.S. And so our report tries to give a sort of snapshot of where things stand today. And as a little context, I think that the private market right now is only about 5% of the total market, but the idea is that that would increase and maybe even rapidly, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. So uh, for a little more context, there's about 5 million national flood insurance program policies in force nationwide. We found that the private market right now is still very small. It's maybe less than 5% of total residential flood policies in the U.S., but it has seen year-over-year growth, and a lot of people project that that growth will continue. Also, I think a lot of people don't realize just how important flood insurance is. I mean, Obviously, if you're if you get flooded, it's important. But the point is that um, I note this from your paper that uh, that less than one third of the people living in a hundred year floodplain actually have flood insurance. So it's all this kind of like a, it it can happen here, human psychology thing that goes on, I guess. And yet, flood insur- a flood can be obviously financially devastating, just as a catastrophic health issue could be for someone without health insurance. Yeah, exactly. Flood insurance take-up rates are very low in the U.S. That's often referred to as the flood insurance gap, that a lot of people that are at risk of flooding don't have coverage. And I think that's an important question. Why do we care about flood insurance and why is that important for people? And the answer really is that flood insurance is necessary for household and community resilience because of the financial protection that it gives to families post-disaster. So without flood insurance, or I should say disaster insurance more broadly, families 
families have to pay for repair and rebuilding either out of savings, which they might not have, by taking on debt or by diverting current consumption. And an important point in all that is that federal disaster aid is actually much more limited than many people believe. So after Hurricane Harvey last year, for example, the average FEMA grant to flood victims was only a little over $4,000, whereas the average insurance payout was $120,000. And that's because those federal grants are only to make homes safe and habitable post-disaster. They're not designed to bring you back to pre-disaster conditions. And many people don't realize that. To bring your home back to what you had before, or even better, um, you need insurance or you have to take on debt um, after the fact. And so despite these benefits, and there's been research showing that people are more likely to rebuild if they have insurance and so on. But despite these benefits, like you said, recent FEMA data suggests that only about 30 percent of people in the highest risk areas, which are these mapped 100-year floodplains, have flood insurance. And it's much smaller outside those areas. So I mean, the other interesting thing is uh, that what's been happening with, with federal flood insurance has been covering all the residential until recently is that after, I, I guess, increasingly uh, bad storms and high, higher costs, that the federal government's been trying to match the risk with uh, the cost of the premium. So, so, for example, if we have a house right on the coastline, the risk is obviously higher than a house that's three miles away. Yet in the past, those two houses paid the same premium, right? And now that's changing. And so as premiums are going up for everyone, is this idea bringing in private insurance to have an alternative, to have competition? How does that fit together? Yeah, the concerns about the cost of flood insurance have been ongoing, particularly the burden that it might be placing on low and middle income families. And there are certain discounts within the flood insurance program that have been phasing out over time. And what you see is some interest. So there's kind of two schools of thought on the role that the private market could play. There are some who are hopeful that it can offer lower cost coverage for some people, broader coverages, more consumer choice, better match products to need because the NFIP product is a bit limited in what it is. Um, But then there are other folks who are concerned that the private market um, in many places will price too high, will drop people after a flood, might not be um, as stable. Cherry, Cherry pick who they're going to cover. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we were able to look into this a little bit. So one concern that motivated some of this report was, on the one hand, you had people saying that the private sector was only going to take low risk policies or those that are poorly priced within the flood insurance program and undermine the financial integrity of the program. And then you had others who would say, actually, any reduction in exposure within the program is on net beneficial, especially to taxpayer liability. And so anything that moves policies out of the NFIP is going to be good, even if the policies that are left are um, the riskier ones, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of that is motivated by the fact that we should say the flood insurance program has been carrying a debt now for over 15 years since Hurricane Katrina to the U.S. Treasury that it cannot repay. And Congress has not yet been willing to forgive all of that debt. So it's in debt over $20 billion right now. So the financial soundness of the program is an ongoing policy issue. We were able to look into where this, and we should reemphasize again how small this private market is right Mm -hmm. now, right? It's growing, but still very small. Um, But we see private sector firms targeting all sorts of different areas. And that's one of the benefits of the private sector is the great diversity in product offerings. And there are some firms that are targeting high-risk areas, some that are targeting low-risk areas, some that feel they can 
compete with the NFIP on what are typically thought to be the riskiest properties. Others are avoiding those areas entirely. So you see a lot of variation. And because the NFIP has to insure everyone, they can't turn you away. Mm -hmm. By default, the private sector has to compare itself to the NFIP and can only offer coverage where they can pull people away. So how did the private sector even get a foothold in this market at all? When we said it's like maybe 5%, but it is growing and a lot of people hope that it grows more. But how did it get into this to begin with if the federal government had a real monopoly on it? Yeah, I think there's a few different things that have come together. One is we heard over and over that there's a lot of international reinsurance interest in taking on more U.S. flood. They think they can handle more U.S. flood in their portfolios and that that's a growth area. And we see that a lot of the flood insurance in the market right now is backed 90 to 100 percent by reinsurance, not by the primary insurance um, carriers, and that the reinsurance companies are often providing a lot of other support functions. So sometimes they will fully design a product create the forms, rate Mm -hmm. it, do the underwriting, and do all of that on behalf of the insurance Mm -hmm. company. So the reinsurance industry is playing a very big role here. We've also seen in the last few years the emergence of inland flood models for the U.S. And so to profitably write insurance for a catastrophe, you have to use sophisticated modeling to have a sense of what your losses could be. And there have been models in place to um, examine storm surge losses for a long time. But It's only recently that we've had models looking at other sources of flooding, inland flooding, stormwater flooding, and those are essential to allow rating. And so those have also played a role in bringing this market. So when you you talked about reinsurers, I think you said international reinsurers. So that's that's like spreading the risk over a much bigger base when you do that. Is that the Yes, so you can diversify U.S. flood Uh with flood in other parts of the world and other perils and other countries. Exactly. Uh, And so – just a little more detail on what kind of policies the, the private carriers are issuing versus what the government's been issuing sure. or offers? Yeah, we've seen, while there's a number of different types of products in the market right now, um, they're dominated by two types. One is what we referred to in the report as NFIP Plus because it is essentially the NFIP product and then other things added on. So, for example, the flood insurance Um, The NFIP policy does not provide additional living expenses. It has very limited coverage in basements. It has a cap of only $250,000 for buildings. And so we're seeing private products that offer all these additional coverages that more closely match what people are used to in their homeowner's insurance and also with much higher limits. The other thing we've seen is an endorsement to homeowner's policies with a low coverage limit that's targeted outside the highest risk areas. So it may only have, say, $50,000 of coverage, but it's for homes that are not really going to ever see catastrophic flooding. So it's not the homes that are going to be knocked over by storm surge, but might only see shallow flooding. Mm -hmm. And what's very interesting, at least to me, um, about that one is that there's a lot of speculation that in order to really close the flood insurance gap, putting flood into homeowners policies is a good way to go. Um, And that if you had an endorsement that you might get lots more people um, choosing to have flood coverage that way. When you say an endorsement, you mean? So right now you have to buy flood as a separate policy to your homeowners policy. And that's really confusing for people because they think if they buy their homeowners policy, they're protected against all these things. But Mm. actually, Mm -hmm. those policies exclude flood, which Mm -hmm. is one reason people think we have such poor take up for flood insurance that people don't realize that. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the private sector is doing what the NFIP does, which is having a standalone flood product. But we're seeing some places where you could have your homeowners insurer essentially just add flood into your homeowner's policy? So it's probably a difficult question because it varies on the level of risk. But 
how much might your homeowner's policy increase if you if you had flood insurance as part of it? Yeah, it varies a lot, as yeah. you said. Outside the high-risk areas, you know, I don't want to speculate, 100 to a few hundred dollars a okay, year, so, maybe. Yeah. Um, in the high, you know, and then the risk can rapidly increase as you go towards, say, r- being right on the coast and storm yeah. surge. And those are the yeah. areas that are very pricey. And it's that brings up another issue, though, which is that we also heard that there might be limitations on what the private sector can do here and that there are certain types of properties and areas of this country where the flood risk is just too high. Mm-hmm. And what we need there is not risk transfer mm-hmm or management of the, the finances, right, but actually lowering the flood risk mm-hmm. through investments and mitigation, through better land use, through better building codes. Um, and so that can be seen as a complement to insurance, right? Mm-hmm. As we bring down the risk, we can also make properties more insurable. Are, is, the, is the federal government and or private insurers actually saying in some cases, we're, we're not going to insure that land, you know, because it's just too close to the ocean, for yes. example. Yes. So uh-huh. the federal government can't say that. They have to insure everyone. They have to take everyone regardless of the risk. The private sector is very choosy. Mm-hmm. And so we heard, for example, almost no companies will take a property that's flooded multiple times before. Mm-hmm. They're referred to in the NFIP as repetitive loss structures. Yeah, yeah. And they're responsible for an enormous percentage of the yeah. flood claim, a disproportionate share of the flood claims. But private sector won't write those. Mm-hmm. That's just too risky. They also won't write, we heard, um, you know, in areas of sunny day flooding and places where um, the flood risk is just so high that it's basically becoming more like a certainty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also heard some companies were putting in place geographic exclusions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that varied a lot by firm. So I don't want to say that's universal, but like mm-hmm. one firm might decide we're not going to write at all in southern Louisiana. One firm might decide we're not going to write at all on barrier islands. Mm-hmm. We did see restrictions also with regard to coastal flood risk and storm surge. Those saying we're not going to write beachfront homes or we're not going to write within so many feet of tidal water, those types of restrictions. So if, you know, if you have a house, I mean, I think there's places like this on Long Island I've read about where the house has been like leveled three times, right? And each time they get their insurance to to reimburse them and, and they're rebuilding. And I, and I kind of get if that's a it kind of grandfathered in because when this all, you know, when the house was built long ago, whatever, everyone agreed that it would be insured. And this is this is a tough case. Right. But what about the lot next to that that hasn't been built on? If someone builds a house, does the government have to insure that house knowing full well that it's probably going to get knocked down three times in the next 30 years? Yeah. So. In order to participate in the National Flood Insurance Program, communities have to voluntarily enroll. And in doing that, they have to adopt some minimum floodplain management regulations. And one of those is that you can't have structures built below what's called BFE or the estimated height of waters in a 100-year flood. New structures. New new structures. So that's supposed to make sure that new structures are less risky than some of the old structures. But we still run into problems, right, especially in areas where flood risk is increasing. So in a lot of coastal communities due to, you know, erosion, subsidence, sea level rise, changing storm patterns, decreases in pervious cover, there's lots of reasons that flood Flood risk is increasing in places, right. and then you get this problem. Right. So even if you if you are consciously, rationally saying, "Look, we're you know, this lot has been destroyed three times. We're not going to let you build on this lot." There's still places where people will be building, and then if we have sea r- the seas rising and worse hurricanes and all that, things are still going to get worse rather than better, most likely when it comes to the damage. For, for these big storms. Is that right? Yes. And the NFIP has to continue to insure these properties. Um, and there's some, this raises a lot of tensions because there's some thought that if you see a greater role of the private market, that will send better 
price signals through the market. And so if you have to actually pay the full risk costs of building or locating somewhere, that that could discourage development in places that's just too risky. But then you have to balance that. things usually work in most other areas, right? Yes, exactly. But you have to balance that with the fact that sometimes – the highest flood risk areas are also the very nicest places to live, right, on the coast. That. And they're kind of all these amenity values. Yeah. And then what you could see is that you're sort of locking low- and middle-income people out of the coast because they can't afford it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be some balance. And actually what we've seen um, politically is that there is bipartisan interest, both Democratic representatives and this administration, in switching the discounts in the flood insurance program to not be based on how old your structure is or other things but to instead have them be means tested so that we target our assistance of the people who need it the most. Mm-hmm. That has not yet happened. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so how how fast might private insurance grow and, and how how would it grow? Like how would it increase the number of households that are insured? Yeah, so uh, two responses. One is that we were unable to really tell how much the private sector is simply taking policies from the NFIP and writing them instead, and so not actually changing the total number of people insured in the U.S. versus growing the number of insured. And it seems like both are happening from our conversations with insurers. And there was a lot of thought that to really grow the number of insured, there has to be much more focus on the demand side as well as the supply side, because people don't understand flood. They don't understand insurance as sort of financial literacy about the role it plays. They're very price sensitive. And so lots of people just don't want flood insurance. And so we need to address that. And there's a lot of thought that, again, if we roll it into homeowners, maybe it could kind of help with the demand side. What else should we know about this study and what you found and some of the issues it raises? You said there was a, a, a bit of a conflict about, you know, what role private insurance should be playing to begin with. Yeah. And I think... I think the market is definitely going to continue to grow. And I think it's also true that there will be a continued role for the NFIP. And certainly in the near term, the private sector is not going to be able to take on all of flood, residential flood in the U.S. And, you know, certainly not over the next few years. But we will still see substantial growth, which I think will be beneficial to a number of consumers. I also think that that growth doesn't necessarily have to undermine other important functions of the flood insurance program. So, for example, premium revenue right now is used to map the flood hazard in the U.S., and those maps are important beyond insurance, but for communities and households trying to manage their flood risk. And, for example, a policy proposal that some insurers are supportive of is to put an equivalent tax on the private policies to continue to fund floodplain mapping. There's also concern that the private sector – that the flood insurance program offers some mitigation grants to help with these repetitive loss mm-hmm. structures and stuff that wouldn't be available if you were in the private market. Mm-hmm. That said, our other research shows that the vast majority of flood mitigation dollars coming from the federal government are actually not tied to the NFIP. They're post-disaster dollars, and so that would continue to be there. Mm-hmm. Hey, well, thanks for coming in today. Thanks and, so uh, much for having me. us about this, yeah. this incredible issue of <laughs> flood insurance. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. So if you... Liked what you hear, please come to our website for more knowledge at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.